Good evening, everyone. Welcome. So, any questions this evening? Yes. I have a question. When Mahaprabhu uh, came back from being initiated by Prabhupada, and he was teaching his students that students of Vedanta that every word in Vedanta means Krishna. It's like uh, so. I was just thinking that is it possible for like early sadhakas to think like that similarly, or, or is there any kind of way to think like that, uh, just to corner our minds? You know, like sometimes we do some stupid things, and in the moment maybe I wouldn't think about some stuff, but later we could think about it more and, and about the words that you said, or basically something like that. And, uh, and so, in that kind of way, that maybe it would help me out. Um, I think I understand your question, and you reference the Leela of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, and um, a part of that Leela in which he goes to East Bengal and becomes initiated and returns a changed person, whereas previously he was a young and extraordinary pundit, a learned person that even great uh, champions of logic and rhetoric and so forth who would come for debate to um, establish themselves as scholars and so forth uh, would were afraid to debate. And uh, at that time in his Leela he made much in one sense, but at the same time very little of knowledge. In other words, he had a lot of knowledge. He exhibited the Aishvarya, the opulence, the majesty of, of, of knowledge. One of the, I want to say, opulences, one of the things that Parashara, the uh, great compiler of um, Vedic wisdom, uh, he listed six of them that together found incompleteness in one person um, he offered as a definition of God who had all wealth, strength, fame, beauty, knowledge and renunciations of knowledge is one of them. Um, beauty is the central of those, incidentally. Hmm? Uh, so he said that person is all attractive. And we're attracted to people who have knowledge, we're attracted to people who have nothing and don't need anything. That's the renunciation. We're attracted to famous people. I mean, that's obvious. And we give them more importance <laughs> than they're due. They're famous for one thing, and then we think they have opinions that are valuable on everything, which may be the case, but likely is not. Um, or often out of their field of expertise, but at any rate, fame, knowledge, beauty, strength, the power, physical prowess, and so forth, it, 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 it naturally attracts people, as does um, wealth uh, and, uh, and beauty, as I say. So, he said, those who, who he who or she who, whomever possesses these things in full, is thereby all attractive. This is what the name Krishna means in one sense, all attractive, who is irresistible. So it's a very kind of, it's a broad, but a 
if we were to plumb the depths of the, each of the words there um, in, in the Sanskrit, Aishvarya Samagra, Sabirya, Sayasya, and so forth, um, he makes a very uh, interesting and um, compelling definition of God, mm-hmm. the all-attractive all one, rather than the, you see, rather than the lawmaker yeah, who we are drawn to, rather than who we have to o- obey, so to speak, um, in order to uh, make our way. So at any rate, amongst them, knowledge. And Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was showing the opulence of knowledge. And so he manifested considerable knowledge. He would tell, give an argument in the Nabhanyaya. Nabhanyaya was a kind of uh, system of logic of the time. It was the city of Matila was known for its scholarship and uh, it kind of was the crown jewel of cities for learning about that time. It is said that the great Sarvabhoma from Nadia, where Chaitanya Mahaprabhu hailed from, went to Matila to learn, um, but there was a book there that could not be taken out of the library. It had to remain there in Matila so that the knowledge of it um, would not be circulated in other cities and other towns or cities would would um, surpass Matila in learning, something like that. So if you had to, wanted to learn, you had to go to Matila. And those weren't days of digital downloads and uh, even printing presses and so forth. But Sarabhoma, he memorized the whole book hmm, to his credit. And then he returned to Bengal and set up his school and he became the most famous logician in all of India. So mentioned, I think, in the Encyclopedia Britannica. His his student, his best student, Raghunandan, uh, Raghunandan, I believe, either Raghunandan or Raghunath. Anyway, uh, his best student, uh, forgive me, but I forget his his name, um, developed from that a very extraordinary <coughs> system of logic. He's very well known too. And it is described that uh, he had the occasion to cross the Ganges in the boat with Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, hmm? at which time he he pulled out his book that um, he was compiling, and he thought, I'll get me my pundit's opinion, which was Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's youthful name. Hmm? his opinion on my book, and if he approves my book, then I will be known as, you know, the most, um, the greatest scholar, something to that effect. So he showed his book to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, and Chaitanya Mahaprabhu looked at it, it's very nice, and he said, I've also uh, written a small book, which he kind of somehow manifests at the time, and I'll share it with you. So Raghunandan began to read the book, of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. This is a book on just kind of sophistry and knowledge and the, the way in which you can play with reason and so forth to make anything uh, right. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu would make an argument. No one could defeat him. And then he would defeat his own argument. And then he would go back to his original argument and so forth. This was his, 
his play, if you will. So anyway, he shared the book with Raghunandan, and Raghunandan was reading it as they crossed the Ganges, and he began to cry. Hmm. Mahaprabhu said, why are you crying? He said, because my book is useless now. I'm reading yours. I see what... And Mahaprabhu said, oh, well, give it back to me. He gave it back, and Mahaprabhu threw it in the Ganges. And Raghunandan became famous from his book of knowledge, whether he learned the lesson of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu as to the futility of reason hmm, with regard to the pursuit of fulfillment in life. Knowledge really has a purpose, and then the purpose is to make us perfectly happy. We have all actions are informed by some knowledge, and the, the actions that are informed by perfect knowledge are thought to make us perfectly happy, perfectly content, satisfied. Hmm? So the lesson was, of course, that this is not going to be arrived at simply by the exercise of one's intellect, because any argument um, can be replaced by another argument, and that argument as well. Hmm. Uh, it said in the sutras, Tarko apratishtanat. Pratishta means some standing. Tarko means argumentation. By argumentation, one can get no standing, no permanent enduring standing. Every logic has a counter logic. That's how, that's how supple the, uh, the intellectual faculty um, can be. So, you know, you, 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 for example, in our modern day, you look at a debate, the pro-life or whatever, um, what's the other one, pro-choice, or um, everybody has their psychologically kind of predisposed position that enables them to identify with a particular logic, but if you really get down to two people who can really debate on whether drugs should be legalized or illegalized, it's very hard to like, everybody's got a good good points on either side, and uh, um, so they're always going to be two sides, especially on whether there's God or there's not God. There, the argument is never going to go away. Hmm? The point is that a conclusive knowledge cannot be arrived at merely by, by reason. And it is unfortunate that in the modern society, uh, in, the, in the Western world, logic has very much been placed um, on the altar. Hmm? It's, uh, it has its place, as I say. Logic is most beautiful when it becomes a, a subordinate to and an ornament of faith. Faith is a vehicle by which we can go places where reason cannot. Faith is not the absence of knowing. Faith is a kind of knowing, an assurity, and a conviction that allows one to move. Doubt, on the other hand, uh, suspends us. Therefore, the Gita says, Shadha ayam purushaha, the Gita, Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, a person is their faith. Faith is the animating principle. I'm not speaking here necessarily about faith in God, but faith in anything. If I have faith in something will work, then I'll, I'll pursue it. If I lack faith in its efficacy, then I'll be suspended. The more, I, the more suspicious I am, the more suspended I am. The more I have faith, the more I can move freely. Hmm? Faith is the animating principle, really, in life, whether it be... And there's different types of faith. Faith in all of the gunas, tamasic faith, radisic faith, sattvic faith, and there's transcendental faith. So, and and we of course and and we it's very interesting that the positions that we arrive at hmm, 
are which we often think are arrived at by logic and reason, as I kind of implied moments earlier, are not necessarily so. They're arrived at because of a psychology and a predisposition that uh, we have acquired by association, either in this life or, if you believe in it, in previous lives as well. Hmm? Because the points, again, there's many ways to look at every point. It's said in the Mahabharata, which is the larger text that the Gita is found in, which is the jewel of the Mahabharata, but it's said there, many nice points otherwise, that that, uh, this um, moral debate, (coughs) what is good, what is bad, hmm, is like taking two stones together and grinding them. The more you grind them, the finer the dust. The more subtle the arguments become, the more um, difficult it is to arrive at a position that is absolute. The point here being, in one sense, morality is not absolute. Hmm? Morality is a system put in place to check people, hmm, humans, from by some type of force, if you will, force of law, hmm? um, from returning to kind of animal consciousness, the call of the wild, just doing whatever your mind and senses uh, call for at any given time. We don't do that. We have some sense that even though that might feel good, this is not the right time to do it. This is not the right place. We don't find that those type of considerations in less complex forms of life. We don't just go jump on some guy or gal in the street because we decided we like her. Well, that would not be appropriate. And so with many other other things. So that would not be appropriate. This is a, this is, this is a, is a distinguishing kind of a determination, hmm? a determination that manifests in human society that, that determines the difference between ourselves and less complex forms of life that don't have such considerations. It's a civilized kind of consideration, the moral law. It's arising in human society where we have a sense that uh, that there there is good, there is bad, and so forth. But but and while something may be uh, kind of good and universally concluded, they're always as such. There are always nuanced circumstances where, well, it's bad, but it's it's not that bad, <laughs> and the whole thing may change. What we may think is good that we we may, I mean, it's starting to. Here's an example starting to pass. Now at Harvard University, recently I heard that they have banned all bottled water. I mean, it wasn't but you know short time ago that bottled water was the most environmentally sound. If you didn't drink water from a bottle. You weren't green and you weren't good hmm? amongst a certain sector of the society. Hmm? Now they, so things, they find out more and they change and so such is the nature of the moral uh, law. Hmm? It's to be determined, there, there is the principle hmm? and then, then there's the application of the principle in different time and circumstances which will make for the law the rule of the day, so to speak. Hmm? And so, comprehensive uh, knowledge or the knowledge by which we can become perfectly satisfied and happy will not come merely from moral um, adherence. 
It's thought by some that this is the sum and substance of religious or spiritual life, to be morally good or morally bad. I mean, to be morally good. <laughs> but, but that there is a moral good and bad, and in determining between the two is the sum and substance of spiritual practice. We, of course, as Vedantins, as, 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 as uh, transcendentalists, have a very different idea about that. We don't say that, we don't advocate the morally bad at the particular time, and we do come up with a, a formula, if you will, a moral compass. What is favorable for my spiritual practice, that's good. What is unfavorable for my spiritual practice, that's bad. Hmm? And so the objective is entirely different. It's not about just being a good guy or not being a bad woman in this world. It's a, a pursuit in theoretical knowledge of the fact that there's a difference between ourself and the world, the objective world, matter. We are subjective, we are consciousness, and that's why in human life the questions of good and bad arise, because consciousness is coming to the fore in a way that it's not in the less complex forms of life. And why questions are surfacing, value questions are surfacing, because consciousness is a unit of value. Matter, the objective world, has no value. It doesn't matter unless it matters to us. Hmm? And it's a subjective call as to what matters and why and, and, and so forth. Hmm? So you see that consciousness is a unit of value and meaning and purpose. So when, it's, when, it, when it comes to the human form of life, the human form of life facilitates it in ways that other forms of life don't. And each form of life facilitates consciousness to one extent or another. Consciousness, by the way, is the life. The biological cycle is another thing. There's biological life. It comes and goes. Hmm? But existence doesn't come and go. Experiential existence doesn't come and go. Hmm? I will experience in another biological form, or I may be successful in transcending the biological cycle of birth and death. So when we get the human form of life, it's obviously it's unique from the other forms of life, and, and we are obviously engaged in questions of value rather than just how questions, questions of why, why am I? What is the meaning? This question doesn't arise from the, amongst the birds and the bees there. The frogs are singing here. They're singing for whatever, to satisfy their ears or to get some food or, or whatever may be the case, to find a mate uh, and so forth. How to do this, how to do that. These how questions all pertain to the natural world, I mean to the, to the objective world, to the world of matter. How to make it within matter. Hmm? Who's trying to make it? something that really matters, actually, and that's ourselves, that's consciousness, but it gets conflated in the lower forms of life, less complex forms of life, with the objective world. It turns it on, posits meaning and value in it, and then gets enamored in the show and enters a virtual reality, so to speak. Human life, we get a chance to come out of that virtual reality and know the reality of the self. But this is when the why starts questioning, because consciousness is a why. It's a, it's a unit of value, meaning, purpose. Hmm? There's no how questions for consciousness in one sense. How to become happy. It is happy. Hmm? How to, how to, ex how to, how to uh, survive in the struggle for existence. It's eternal. It doesn't have that question. How to acquire knowledge that, that I might be free. It's a unit of knowledge. Hmm? So we want to, we want hows of these things, and we are these things. 
We are a unit of being, knowing, and loving. Satchit Anandam is our position. So at any rate, we ask the moral questions in human life. Um, these are questions of meaning. We're in pursuit of what we are. And the moral questions are kind of a crude beginning whereby we we distinguish to some extent ourselves from just running after sense objects and the push of the senses and the and the demands of the mind at any given time. We 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 would control them for a higher purpose. Hmm? Whatever that may be, even atheistically speaking, to preserve the species or whatever. But it's either um, it's, the pur- it's a purpose-filled life. Human life is a purpose-filled life. It's difficult to get away from that. Even if you think that life has no purpose or meaning, then you've arrived at a purpose and a meaning thereby. Hmm? The life, you, you know, you want to make a strong argument that there's no meaning to life. This is You can't get away from the purpose-driven nature of the Atma, the Self. So... So at any rate, above the moral life is the life of the Atma. Subjective, first-person experience, a unit of satchit, Ananda with great potential, and so on and so forth. So, um, knowledge, (coughs) its acquisition, um, what I'm pointing out here is that, that just by acquiring knowledge, just by exercising our logical faculty, Hmm? we will not arrive at the more. We may arrive at a moral good or bad. We may debate it and so forth. And you can see many people are preoccupied with this and a political right and wrong. And, but it's never ba- there's always an imbalance. It's, there's always, it's always going to be like that. It's never going to change. Hmm? Hmm? And if they had a dictatorship where they made all the laws, and still people would revolt. And it was always going to be... So it's a it's a way by looking at this. You see, it's a it's a. I'm pointing out just the nature of logic and reason unto itself. You know, what it would be empirical logic, logical positivism has a little bit of popularity. Um, well, fair amount amongst some. It's kind of resurfacing. So these things surface and then they, they 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 go to the background and so on and so forth. Vedanta sits back and tells us about the self from the position of experiencers and um, and offers us a, a method methodology for experiencing the self as well. That's a that's another kind of knowledge. So Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was dealing with what the world thought was knowledge. And he had manifested an immense amount of it, it was staggering and people were attracted to him, but he also he was playing with it. Hmm? An example of his throwing his book into the in the river. Well, if it makes you unhappy, you can be the most learned person. I could care less. Hmm? That's uh, the lesson to be learned in all of his extraordinary manifestation of knowing. Hmm? And so he went, as I say, and you're citing this this instance, uh, asking a question about it from East Bengal, West Bengal to East Bengal. This is his Leela. So at a certain point, he becomes initiated and then he begins to manifest bhakti. Hmm? And how satisfied is he? Hmm? He's weeping 
and he's, he's trembling when he chants the name of Krishna and passing out and uh, in ecstasy and so forth. He returns to West Bengal, Mayapur, Navadvip, hmm? and the people are amazed. The Vaishnavas, the devotees, are amazed. That, oh, Nimai Pandit, who was wasting his time in school and with logic, and so now he's become a Vaishnava. So they thought, we've really got a great, you know, guy that's joined us now, <laughs> something like that. He's Krishna, of course, in the form of a devotee of himself, hmm. as we understand from the sacred texts. Hmm. And so he begins to manifest bhakti. And then, of course, he begins to teach differently. Hmm. So as you say, he, while previously in, in grammar and, and rhetoric and so forth, he would find so many meanings of so many words and draws you know, so much from a particular text and so forth. Now he said, every word hmm, in the Sanskrit dictionary means Krishna. So and he began to teach like that, and, then, and so um, this was a very extraordinary exhibition of the the measure of his devotion. And 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 the deeper one goes, you know, there's a saying that one sees others, and by extension, the world. Um, as one sees oneself, so there's a projection of our own self, so to speak, on others and and on inanimate things, and it mirrors often very much what we like. What we don't like is often something very much in us that we see um, in others, but we don't identify the fact that it's in us and deal with it. Um, so. So he, deeply absorbed in bhakti as he was, in love of Krishna, the whole world reminded him of Krishna. He saw every. It's just like another. It gives another. Use another example. If someone is very preoccupied with, let's say, sex life. Then he's always telling sexual jokes. Everything's a metaphor for sex. He see, he sees it like this, and the whole world speaking to him like this. The whole world is a big whatever for him. Or her, <laughs> and that's their orientation. So he was absorbed in Krishna, and so he saw everything in that from that point of view. You could say, well, is it really this word really mean in Krishna? Well, uh, what does it mean? If by saying it, he was absorbed in ecstasy and became ha- perfectly happy, as I say, well, then maybe that is the meaning of the word. Whether you can draw that out yourself. Uh, you know, that's another thing that may take some, some time to arrive at that uh, experience of, of his that enabled him to do that and really feel that. It is said that in the presence of Krishna, there is one Krishna, but in the separation from Krishna that makes the heart grow fonder, there are millions of Krishnas. In other words, if you have something and, you, and it's very valuable to you, then you lose it. Well, then you're, and it's, uh, you, you're everywhere looking for it, everywhere, everything. It could be there, everything, reminding you of it and so forth. I mean, so the Leela and love of Krishna moves like that. He appears, he disappears for the sadhaka, for the practitioner. Shows himself, he disappears. Hmm? Even for the siddha, he, in the Leela, he appears, he disappears. And so this sep- love of union, love of separation, these are the two banks of the river of love. Hmm? If you like the high and the low tide, 
the dark night of the soul and the bright noon day. Uh, so, and both are ecstatic, of course. So Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, like this, he 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 he. he one of the things he did, as you say, he saw every word. I mean, Krishna, you saying you're saying I can't do that, but is there something I could do that would be kind of like something like that, which would just be kind of a technique of the mind or something like that that I could be reminded of Krishna in, in everything I do? That's what you're kind of asking, if I understand correctly, right? Um, well, the interesting thing is that Jiva Goswami did um, come up with a system like that with regard to language and the Sanskrit lexicon and the rules of grammar. He wrote a book called Harinam Amrita Vyakaranam. Vyakaranam means the, the grammar of the nectar, immortal nectar of Harinam, or the, of the name of Krishna. And so he, he developed a system for, so, because students would learn Sanskrit in the school at the time, and then the system was that there was a rhyme for every rule, for example, of grammar. Just like I think there's probably something like that in English, at least when we were kids, I vaguely remember that. Something you, you, I before E except after C. Mm-hmm. Something like that. Not all the time, though. <laughs> so, so he wrote a whole poetry and of, of, of rules of grammar in which every rule of grammar was... Um, a glorification of one of the names and avatars of Vishnu. Hmm? So you could learn the Sanskrit grammar and be glorifying Vishnu all the time. Sometimes it's thought of as a kind of a nam abhas, kind of a shadow of sorts of, of the pure name where you sit and meditate and try to concentrate on the name. And so you're not doing it purposefully there, but it's happening to you. Anyway, you're there to learn Sanskrit, but you're chanting Vishnu, Narayan, Krishna, Hari, Ram, and so there's some benefit from that. So it, it, the answer is yes, in a sense. There is a possibility of doing something like that, and um, something's better than nothing. So if there's some rule you can make for yourself or some something you can do and that, or, that uh, can help you to focus uh, the mind, make it one-pointed, one hmm? and uh, cause everything to remind you of Krishna, no, no harm. Of course, and then the idea would be you come to a point where that you're that's happening naturally, spontaneously, and so forth. But in the beginner's stage, as the sadhaka, maybe some some things. Of course, ideally, the the idea of being able to chant, for example, and focus the mind, while there may be techniques that one could use, um, the the central idea there is that which you give your heart to, your mind will go to automatically. And therefore, we are enjoined to chant feelingly more than we are enjoined to chant with any technical uh, expertise. Let's say you have technical expertise with regard to music and so forth. That can be employed. Hmm? That can be good. And if you sing off-key, it may be hard for others to... Uh, you remain in the kirtan and so forth. So some technical expertise has some value, but it's relative. Hmm? Um, and and from the more 
absolute perspective, as I say, or more central. If you chant with your heart, now of course that sounds good. Chant with your heart and then your mind, but the hearts, our hearts are atrophied. That's a fact. It's it's all you have to do is give your heart. You don't have to have any money. You don't have to have a big brain. But then we find that sounds easy, but it's easier said than done because our hearts are already over given over. Hmm? They're already given over to the identification we have with matter. Hmm? And it's they're full of desires hmm? resulting from our misidentification with matter. We have uh, attraction for things rather than for the self. And so, so it, it's the heart is encumbered, so to speak. Hmm? We need some surgery. So it's a good association with sadhus. This is kind of like to go under the knife, so to speak. In fact, the word sadhu, which means saint, so in English, sadhu also means um, to cut, like sharp with a knife. So he or she can cut and make a point that, you know, that's true, it's uncomfortable, but it's true. <laughs> and and I have to exercise myself hmm, to be truthful, will do what's good for me, hmm, and let go hmm, uh, of whatever, the baggage. Hmm. Sometimes the example is given and the man was crossing the river in the rainstorm and he had a bag of gold, you know, something like that. And he wasn't making it. So he had to let the gold go to live, right, to get to the other side. So that's painful because you, you, you bring the other side with you. The side you left, you bring with you, and you can't do that. Hmm? It's a place of no return. You can't go there with your shoes on, so to speak. You have to leave something behind. Hmm? What is that you have to leave behind? The whole idea of what you are is false. <laughs> That's your heart. That You've made it. Hmm? You are your desire. So I often say our sense of mine defines, determines our sense of I. What I think is mine determines what I think I am. This is my country, I am American. Hmm? This is my car, I am that kind of guy that they put on the TV who rides that kind of car. And I, you know, This is my kind of whatever. Our, really, we are a bundle of desires. The, the ego is a bundle of desires. It's even said, it's thought in, uh, well, Hume thought it a long time ago, but uh, some modern philosophers also think that the I, the self, is just a bundle of experiences and desires. Of course, that's the false self, but there's someone who's desiring, hmm? not just the desires, that's the real self, that's another thing. So there's a false self and there's just a bundle of desires. Hmm? That's not a real person. That's what we call a hunkar. Uh, Prabhupada used to translate it false ego, but it literally means eye-maker, eye-maker. An eye that is made, if you will, will be unmade. Whatever is born will die, whatever dies will be uh, reborn, something like that. So there's a... There's a hmm? Yeah, there's, a, there's, a, we, there's an eye that is made... Hmm? But there's a real eye that's involved in the making of the eye <laughs> that's made. 
it's not made. Hmm? That real eye, in conjunction with matter, hmm, makes an eye that doesn't really exist in, in any enduring or meaningful sense. Hmm? And it will not, let's uh, just say, it will not, it's not enduring, so it will not endure the test of time. It will be gone. Therefore, in the Sanskrit ideal language, in the, in the Vedanta school, of course, that which is real, sat, is that which is endures. Hmm? And, and, is, and is luminous, self-luminous. doesn't undergo transformation. That it was one thing, now it's another thing, now what was it? You know, I was a child, now I'm an old man. I don't feel old, but... But, uh, no, but so, what happened to the child? Well, you, you know, you can say this, that, the other thing, and you can say, well, it's the same DNA, so, but, you know, that was all dissolved too. <laughs> and so... That's not considered real, then. Hmm? Real endures. It doesn't undergo the transformations of birth, maturation, uh, giving off of offspring, dwindling, and disappearing. That doesn't undergo such transformation. That is the Atma. It's the observing factor. And it's the ever-changing material phenomena. The real, so to speak. The movie's going on. You turn it on, and you're caught up in it. You can turn it off. <laughs> it depends on you. You don't depend on it. Hmm? We think, it depends on me. It does, in another sense. You turn it on. Hmm? But your life doesn't depend on it. Quite the opposite. Hmm? The more we identify with the movie of material identification, hmm? the less of a free life we actually have. That we remain in this cycle of the biological birth and death. So, long answer to your question, but uh, another answer to your question that can kind of conf uh, affirms the, uh, the answer you were... Um, looking for, perhaps, uh, if you were looking for an affirmative answer. Of course, you were looking for either one, you just wanted to know, but but it said, with regard to sadhana, mana krishna niveshaya. Somehow or other, fix the mind on Krishna. Somehow or other. Of course, when we say that, we should also know there are means that have proven themselves to be very powerful. Hmm? And so they should be not not be neglected. We used to have years and years ago. I lived in a in a Prophet's Temple in Los Angeles, and there was a we were all pretty young at that time, and and um, in our teens and twenty, early twenties, a couple of older guys, <laughs> a couple of guys were really old, like they were 20, thirty, you know. And uh, anyway, this one guy came, and he um, had read the instruction that, you know, one should always remember Krishna. So he had a little little flute like this. I don't know what you would call it. Not quite a flute, but... Yeah. A, yeah. Yeah. And he put a little picture of Krishna on the end, like that. And so we were all doing service and so forth to Krishna, cleaning the temple and decorating and cooking for Krishna and the devotees and whatever was required, 
the full life of uh, that anybody would have, but the center was fully Krishna and so forth. Hmm? But he didn't want to do anything because he had read, just remember Krishna. So he just played the thing and looked at the picture and he used to walk around the temple. That was all he would do. You ask him to do anything, he wouldn't look at it. He'd just play the flute and listen to Krishna. But his circles became bigger and bigger and bigger. He's out there somewhere, you know. Who knows what he's doing now, in other words. So while there's truth to the idea that somehow or other and you might create something that helps you in some way, we would be very foolhardy to neglect the the practices that have been handed down to us that have been efficacious, hmm? um, that saints have employed and passed down to us. They're powerful and they're kind of empowered practices. And of course, again, if you to remember Krishna, the easiest way is to love Krishna. Hmm? And how you love someone, well, really at the bottom of love, if you will, is service. Love is born from a womb of sacrifice. Hmm? And, um, I mean, there's a thing called infatuation, that's another thing, but love, hmm? you can't be, you can be infatuated with your kids, but if you love them, you got to serve them. And the same thing with your partner, you know, you have to make sacrifices to make it work and so forth. So really love is a, is a, is a, there is a labor, if you will, hmm, to love. Hmm. So in, in, underlying it is sacrifice. It's an act of giving, hmm, not taking. Hmm. So that means selflessness. Giving is selfless. So this is the, work, if you will, the math to the art of, of loving, sacrifice, self-sacrifice. So, we were serving, and at least I'm still here. And this is way, so to, to remember Krishna is to love Krishna, to love Krishna is to think, well, if you love him, then don't you want to do something for him? You love him. Hmm? You, you, you want to do everything for him. You, you, that's the idea. So, and uh, and for us, of course, and uh, we felt Krishna was fully manifest in our guru, so we wanted to please Prabhupada whatever he wanted. We, we found that everyone it was good for us and in our real real self interest and so forth. So, makes for happy and full full life. And he, of course, passed on as we do these empowered type of practices. Hmm? What else? Yes. So along the line of the flute playing Vaishnava, uh, we don't want to deprecate the budget in that as opposed to the ghost Janandi? Yeah, ghost Janandi. So how do we keep that in perspective? I mean, the, the Bhajananandi is, is, is a part of our rich tradition, that person who secludes himself from every everything and does no outreach on behalf of spreading Krishna consciousness, but he's reaching in to, all the time, no reaching out. Mm -hmm. How do we, it, it looks like one would say that's looking like a cop-out. He's, he's taken the easy road out. He's just, mm -hmm. of course we know it's no, no easy road, but it is one of the roads. Mm -hmm. But from a perspective of an outreach, uh, you know, organization like the majority of Gaudiya Vaishnavs, it seems that uh, it does seem to be a little bit of a, 
of, a, of a, the easy road. Mm-hmm. Well, there is, uh, there is external bhakti and there is internal bhakti. And the latter will follow the former. So, if you engage your senses, which are, are instruments of both action and perception, in Krishna Bhakti, which is an active type of life rather than a contemplative life, then the capacity to effectively engage in in, in contemplative uh, in a contemplative posture and and pursuit of Krishna consciousness or spiritual life comes to the fore. Hmm? And um, the same idea is given in the Gita with regard to nishkam karma and jnana. Krishna says there's no difference between nishkam karma and jnana. Nishkam karma means that you perform your, um, well, in the classic sense, the various uh, religious duties and uh, without attachment, nishkam, without attachment to the results. People do them with a desire to go to heaven or get this or that. So you do them without a desire for the result. This allows... This is an active life hmm, that makes the possibility of ingress of, of wisdom into the heart. Because when we pursue the fruits of our actions as if that's the goal, then we're constantly on this roller coaster. Hmm, because I was going along and I got what I wanted, and then I lost it. Oh, I got her, I lost her. I, I, you know, and we we're always up and down. So. The yogic idea, when we go from just karma to karma yoga, for example, the, the central part of yoga is this equibalance and so forth. So when one follows the, the, let's say, one's duties or something like that, without attachment to the result, just to do them as they should be done and so forth, then he or she comes to some balance. And, and is not just chasing the fruits, and finds this is better. <laughs> this is better because as high as it gets is as low as it gets with regard to fruit chasing and so forth. So, so as that balance comes into uh, one's life, one can move from an active life to a contemplative life effectively. Otherwise. If you have desires, hmm, too many, it's difficult to be contemplative hmm, because they're going to take you away from that. So meditation, an internal, an internal bhakti, correspondingly, requires some greater um, qualification hmm, than to be actively engaged externally in bhakti. Hmm. And so... Under the good guidance, one should engage oneself externally, one's senses. And the fruit, there's a fruit of that. This is a spiritual fruit, a desirable fruit. The fruit is that the heart should become purified and one can find that one can sit contemplatively and, and become absorbed. Hmm? The problem is if you imitate that, and then you have other thoughts, and then it, then it becomes... Hypocrisy, you know, he's it's mentioned by Krishna in the Gita. What is that verse? He says, Mityacharas Uchate. He sits 
He has appearance as a contemplative, but his mind is somewhere else. He's a cheater only. He's a hypocrite. Hmm? Better he worked a hard day, hmm? got active, and refrained from you know, fruit chasing, if you will. Hmm? So this applies in bhakti as well. And Bhakti Thakur has cited a verse from Bhagavatam to support the point I'm making, that it applies to bhakti when he said that that the real true beauty is knowing one's eligibility. So one may not be eligible for contemplative life per se, but it can be eligible for an active life in bhakti in an ashram environment, let's say, for example, or as a householder as well. And if one does that successfully, there should be a result that, that, that of a cleansing of the heart, which is the first stage one should experience, for example. In, you know, you want to speak of outreach, as much as Sankirtan is outreach. Its stated purpose is inreach. You follow me? Because Mahaprabhu said the first goal of our Sankirtan is Chetodarpanamarjana, cleansing the heart. So we minister to other people or share the teaching and the real fruit is for ourselves. We shouldn't think I'm saving the world but I'm getting a chance to speak the teaching for example, share it with others and hear it coming out of my own mouth you know, I should really follow it now <laughs> I'm saying it you know, so it, it has a uh, it kind of corners you in a way that even when others say it you know, it, it, it does not as Effectively, it forces you to be, to be honest. Do I believe in this? I'm telling it to somebody else. Then I see he or she becomes moved by that, and so it should have an internal effect, and that's the effect we should be looking for. We go to build a big temple with the within mind, with with building a small temple in our own heart in mind. Actually, all the external actions are really internally oriented when properly understood. We have a goal. We have a, we have a prayogen and it's praying. It's not being a carpenter or a, you know, a house builder or a bookseller or, or whatever. Hmm? It's, it's, to, it's to have a spiritual life. So, um, therefore, one should not imitate the bhajan anandi. This is a higher stage. Now there are those who have qualified for that type of life, hmm? but but in a, remain in the public, hmm? and they are moved by Krishna in this way. Hmm? Therefore, we should not think less of those who are moved by Krishna towards contemplative life and are qualified. Hmm? At the same time, relatively, that's the absolute perspective. From the relative perspective, we will think. Those who are involved in outreach are better because without them we wouldn't be here. So we have an affinity for them. Hmm? But um, highly realized persons are moving under the Daivim Prakritim, under the Sarup Shakti of Krishna, and whatever reasons, you may move them in a different way. Gorkishore was a contemplative. He chased people away who came to see him. Hmm? He had one disciple, Bhakti Siddhanta, and he made 64 monasteries. 
the difference between the guru and the disciple. They were doing the same thing, but it was expressed differently hmm, by the will of Krishna. Hmm. He was sitting in contemplative life, the, the student of Gorkashore, of Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur, and he got inspiration to get up, hmm, set an example for others, uh, and so forth. So we're all here because of that. Uh, we appreciate that. We, 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 we identify with that and so forth, but we should not do so in such a way as to err and um, and uh, have a material conception of a contemplative, thinking them to be uh, selfish. I mean, after all, it's Krishna that's drawing them to himself in a particular way. That's what he wants. Hmm. Um, ideally, you know, they're, they're unable to preach. So to speak, yes. And then, not I mean, not that they don't know, but they're they're just falling over and crying all the time. So <laughs> difficult. Yes, I'm sorry. Go ahead. And then uh, I mean, if we look at uh, Bhakti Maharaj, he was he, he seemed to be. He was a contemplative for for simply contemplation, but. Krishna sent so many people to him. To play. He had to speak. Yeah. Yeah. So the fact of the matter is that that real spiritual um, progress and attainment will be shared, whether you try to share it or you try to hide it. It will be shared. I told Sridhar Maharaj once, I said, he said, I am a backward pushing man. That's always my way to stay in the background. I never want to be in the foreground. I said, well, you've pushed, you st- it's like you're standing on the center stage now. You pushed yourself backwards so far because the stages go around like this that now you're coming out the other way in full view of everybody. So accept it, turn around, and, you know, you have so many people, it's a big audience. You weren't trying. And then there are those who try to get a big audience. They probably shouldn't be doing that. Uh, <laughs> it's... Uh, So, all right. Anything else? What's the time? Eight ten. Eight ten. Okay. We should stop there. And I'm sorry, but what's your good name? Daniel. Daniel. Very nice of you to visit us. I think you might have come from neighboring state, is it? Came from Nashville. Nashville. I was visiting Asheville in North Carolina. Okay. So I came from Nashville, Tennessee. Went to Asheville for a workshop, and then came here. We're not too far from Asheville. You saw our property that we're developing. That's nice. How long will you be with us? Not much longer. You leave tonight? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, thank you for coming. You're welcome to come anytime. Thank you. Shisi Waradamadav Ki Jai.